Okay, whenever you're ready to just press right here. And this is microphone's on? Yes. So I'll, I'll edit the. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, let me uh, do it when they're all here. I don't know. I guess whatever you want. Charisse isn't here, so she said to. At the end, it might. There's another lecture coming. We're running a little late. Probably better if they had it and try it during the lecture. Okay. I don't know. I suppose. There's, remember, there's a back. There's four questions instead of three. I was making it harder. But. I got that. I'm avoiding I'm on days today. I was on days like night. And then I was on days before that. I'm on a really weird schedule. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the three day off this weekend schedule. So you don't even get Okay. I'm not right at Oh, you don't want you don't want the seat right here. <laughs> so what if I do? So what's going on with So yeah, there's some
Okay, ready? Before we begin, I want to mention that we're running late. This is a pretty long lecture. There's a lot of information, and so I expect you, I'm going to be sending out a PDF version of my handout later to emails. You can download it to your, I, your iPad if I can get it the megabytes down so I can send it, because I have images here. So uh, also remember, um, it's probably better if you don't ask any questions or comments <laughs> until the end, because I'm going to run out of time, unless I ask you a question, and you can answer, okay? Or if I say something that's totally unclear, because I... I may not finish this because we're running late. Um, let me yes. Is this going to work on uh, the slideshow? Oh, the mouse. Never mind. Wait. Okay, so I uh, used to give this lecture and just talk about acute abdominal pain in the elderly, but I've also added a few things here about uh, gastrointestinal bleeding which may have pain or not, which can be an emergency in the elderly, uh, just a few words. And also about diarrhea and C. difficile at the end, which is becoming a really major problem in the elderly with high fatality rates and causes uh, a present with just abdominal pain without diarrhea. So I'm going to begin with a case to show you how difficult this is to sort out the causes of an acute abdominal emergency in the elderly. So we start with a case here. It has a couple pages here. 82-year-old uh, male. He comes in uh, with his wife in the evening, mid-evening. Means he's there like at 9 o'clock at night, so you don't have access to all your attending consultants available in the hospital. Uh, he complains of sudden abdominal pain and nausea. He didn't have any vomiting. Uh, he didn't have any vomiting blood. Uh, his past history includes atrial fib, but you'll notice later he actually is in sinus rhythm. Uh, but he has atrial fib in the past, gallstones, which he didn't have taken out, and osteoarthritis, for which he's being treated with prednisone, probably irrationally, uh, ibuprofen, aspirin, and furosemide. Uh, what do you think about uh, the prednisone doesn't really work for osteoarthritis? That's probably what he's on for his, by his doctor. The ibuprofen is probably for his arthritis, but he's on aspirin to uh, prevent maybe strokes and MIs. Uh, remember, ibuprofen and other NSAIDs counteract the beneficial effect of aspirin. So it's an irrational combination. Uh, so you look at his vital signs. He's alert, but he's tachycardic. And if he was an uncontrolled atrial fib, it might be okay. But, he's, but he's, he has sinus tachycardia. Respiratory rate's a little fast. His blood pressure is high. His temperature is 37.5. Now, in the elderly, if that's repeated and is repeatedly 37.5, orally, that's abnormal. So it could be a serious infection. Okay, even though you can have afebrile infections. So when you examine his, most of his body is pretty normal exam here, except for the abdomen is fairly soft. It's not distended, but it has mild diffuse tenderness. You cannot localize the tenderness. Uh, you do x-rays and your bedside right upper quadrant ultrasound at the same time. He has gallstones. You don't see any obvious cholecystitis, uh, but you see gallstones. Uh, you don't see a triple A. Uh, and he had acute abdominal series. It showed the lungs seem okay, the heart and lungs seem fine. Uh, you see the gallstones on the x-ray, and it's called nonspecific by you and the radiology resident. There's no particular signs of perforation or obstruction or anything like that. So you get some lab tests showing his white count's normal. He has a left shift. His lipase is two times normal. 
His CMP is actually normal. His UA is not pertinent. Let's say it was normal. EKG shows sinus tack, no acute ischemic changes. We'll assume that's interpreted correctly. So uh, you have a diagnosis. It seems like acute pancreatitis. <coughs> he's not that sick. Uh, you give him some fluids, and his pulse comes down a little bit. So you think he's stable, maybe to go to a telly bed upstairs. Uh, anything different you might want to do here? Well, lactate. lactate wasn't done. And rectal exam. Rectal exam wasn't done. Amylase. No. He just had a lipase. He didn't have a CT abdomen. Okay. So he's admitted to a medical resident team that there's no attending or fellows involved. So he goes upstairs right away for pancreatitis. Now, for pancreatitis, this could be a good story for that because in the elderly, by far the most common cause of pancreatitis is gallstones. Unlike younger people, like alcoholics, it might be the alcohol, but in older people, gallstones, that's common. Uh, and the other thing is, He's on two drugs which cause pancreatitis, furosemide and prednisone. They're well-known drug, drug causes of pancreatitis. So he has several reasons why he might have pancreatitis. It makes a lot of sense. So uh, he goes upstairs, and he's upstairs now. The, 12 hours later, the medicine team, the new team comes in for rounds. They're attending. Now he looks much ill. He's complaining of more pain. He's having more tenderness. His heart rate's now more tachycardic and is hypotensive and the medicine was quite concerned about him, they sort of transfer him to the unit and they call a surgery consultant. And now he has to get a few smile tenderness. He's transferred to intensive care and the, he gets to the ICU in about an hour and the ICU team calls for the surgeon who arrives about two hours later. Meanwhile, they're just mainly giving resuscitation here. And he dies in a couple hours in the ICU. His autopsy, he had perforated peptic ulcer with diffuse peritonitis. So remember, if you'd even done a CAT scan on this patient, it might have been normal because you often don't see a perforation. Even on a, it might not have perforated totally when he first came in, but peptic ulcer is deadly in the very elderly, uh, in the absence, with or without bleeding. Um, and it's often missed because you really need endoscopy unless it's perforating and you see free air. So beware of this disease, and I'll mention more about this later. So let's look at the, what's the difference between causes of acute abdominal pain in the elderly and those that are uh, younger. So uh, I'm going to, actually, you should think of the elderly, in my opinion, as being over 75 years of age. That patient that BC presented or something was, was or the M&M case, Austin, was like a younger elderly person, wasn't like 69. So that wouldn't be classified in my lecture. So it's over 75. But this, this classification, they looked at people over 50 and under 50, there was a big difference in the final diagnosis. Uh, young people, often they couldn't find the cause, so they called it nonspecific pain. Appendicitis, much more likely in younger people. And you'll see as I show the really old, old, appendicitis is actually way down on the list of a, a, ca a cause of acute abdominal pain in the elderly. Cholecystitis being much more common. Obstruction and pancreatitis and diverticular disease being much more common. Here's a Mayo Clinic series of the very elderly, over 80 years old. This is from the ED doctors at Mayo Clinic. They're ED doctors. They looked at patients who were elderly, over 80, who came to the ED with acute abdominal pain and that got admitted and they eventually had a, an abdominal operation for a surgical emergency. So they had to have those two together and they found cholecystitis was the ultimate cause in, in a quarter of them. So these are people that actually had the operation and sometimes they didn't know when they came in what they had. But hernias, strangulated hernias, which were sometimes not palpable on the outside, 
was the cause in 21%. Bowel obstruction with ischemia was 16%. Appendicitis was probably about the fifth, but it still occurs, but it's much less common. Uh, diverticulitis wasn't common because you often don't go to surgery. That's the problem. You could treat that medically in most cases. So in this series, at the Mayo Clinic ED, where you expect they have the best doctors and best laboratory, about up to a third of the patients, when they arrived in the ED, had no temperature and a normal white count. I don't know if they had a left shift, but they had a normal white count, and they still had a surgical abdomen. And these were the, remember, these are the really old patients over 80. So what complicates the diagnosis of acute abdominal pain in the elderly is that they have a high rate of asymptomatic abnormalities, which you can uh, mistake as the cause of the problem. So one-third to one-half of the elderly actually have gallstones that haven't been removed yet by surgery. And so if somebody comes with abdominal pain, they already know I have gallstones. And you sit on your ultrasound, oh, yeah, it's biliary colic. Unless you're seeing absolute cholecystitis for sure on your ultrasound test, you should discount that and say you've got to look for every other cause because it could be that the gallstones are just asymptomatic and now they're having their rupturing AAA, perforated peptic ulcer, diverticulitis, appendicitis. Diverticular also very common. So um, if somebody says, oh, I had diverticulitis last year and bleeding diverticula, now I have the same symptom again, don't just attribute that to the diverticulitis. You better do some imaging to figure out it's not one of the other causes. 5% of the very elderly have an asymptomatic aortic aneurysm that may be, it's already diagnosed, possibly being watched. So when they come in with abdominal pain, you might attribute that, that it's leaking, but, and you're look, doing a lot of things to look for that and not realizing they have a perforated peptic ulcer or something like that. So uh, this can, don't uh, anchor your diagnosis based on their past history. It may be something totally new. Now the elderly, when they get an intra-abdominal infection, uh, like whether it's appendicitis, cholecystitis, diverticulitis, or peritonitis or some other cause, they often, even if the infection is localized, very well localized, like unperforated appendicitis or cholecystitis, they generally present with generalized abdominal pain and generalized tenderness. So often you can't localize the problem based on the exam. Um, and a lot of these people might be demented. It's even harder to even localize they have any abdominal complaints. Uh, often they have diffuse peritonitis on, a, on surgery but, or on a CT scan, but they may really not have any rigidity. Uh, they can often don't have any high fever or leukocytosis. You might look for a left shift or lactic acidosis with these things as more important than a high fever or leukocytosis. They can even have bacteremia with no fever or no white count. And then uh, some of these people may be on chronic <coughs> beta blocker therapy, so you might think of looking for tachycardia, say a heart rate over 90, as a cause of some serious thing going on. But if they're on beta blockers like metropolol or cardiobol or something for their heart disease uh, or hypertension, they may not be able to mount a tachycardia. And then they often have chronic NSAID use and acetaminophen use uh, for arthritis, osteoarthritis, which could blunt their febrile response. It may blunt some of their response to pain. And they may get less nausea and vomiting than a younger person would for the same degree of disease. So. Um, this is a slide I show for lots of lectures. It doesn't apply, it applies to any kind of elderly person, not just abdominal emergencies. But the patients with abdominal emergency in the elderly could present with no abdominal symptoms. There's no pain and no tenor, especially old demented people. They may just have syncope and have, of course, like the, the M&M case was really an abdominal problem, right? Uh, they may present with a failure to thrive, just falling down, frequently falling for a few days may be an abdominal emergency as well as many other things. So uh, think of the acute abdomen uh, 
in a patient who doesn't really have any abdominal complaints, at least address that issue of doing an exam and maybe imaging and lab tests to, to address whether they could have an acute abdomen as the cause of their generalized symptoms. So in general, for intra-abdominal infections in the elderly, just sort of summarize, they may not have any fever, they may not have any leukocytosis, uh, they may have minimal abdominal pain, they usually will have some abdominal tenderness with an abdominal emergency, but they may not have pain, and you may, may not be able to localize the pain to the area of involvement of the disease. Um, and so that means that these people can go bad quickly. And so once you think they might have an abdominal infection, uh, as soon as you draw your initial orders, you're still thinking you probably should order blood cultures, urine culture, you know, chest x-ray, looking for a source, but order an antibiotic. So that's given in the first hour or two uh, of, your of your seeing the patient, something that covers your abdominal sepsis. Um, and I would recommend always obtaining blood cultures, urine culture, a chest x-ray, and abdominal radiographs in the elderly with acute abdominal pain, not necessarily chronic, but acute abdominal pain. And by radiographs, I may not just mean, a, I may not mean an acute abdominal series, it could be a CT scan, because the general series may not be that useful. So let's look at appendicitis. So uh, in a young person, a young, a 21-year-old male who comes with abdominal pain to the ED and says, I never go to doctors. I never get sick. I have abdominal pain for two days. It's appendicitis, 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 appendicitis. There's nothing else that's serious unless it's really weird like a kidney, or a kidney stone. But in an elderly person, appendicitis is much less common. First of all, they might have had their appendix out and be demented not be able to tell you that. But also, it's not one of the more common causes. Um, but when they present with appendicitis, they commonly already present with perforation. And there's reasons for that I'll show on another slide, why it might be more likely to be perforated. Uh, one of the reasons it could be there is often the delay in diagnosis, and it's often due to the patient's delay in seeking care, as opposed to the doctor's misdiagnosing it. So with even a localized non-perforated appendicitis, the abdominal pain tends to be diffuse and poorly localized, and the same with the tenderness. You can't really localize it anywhere. It could even be right upper quadrant, left lower quadrant, and it still could be appendicitis. So append the appendix in the elderly uh, it, the lumen gets narrowed, the mucosa gets thin, and you decrease the number of lymphocytes. It's very structurally weak, decreased vascularity, and that's maybe result in earlier perforation. So it presents with perforation half the time. Uh, the, this was an older study by a surgeon at one of the large hospitals. I think it was UCLA or Wadsworth or something. Before they had modern imaging, before you get CT scans on everybody, but they studied 96 elderly people over 60, and I'm talking about over 75 in most of my lecture, but only, only about one-fifth of them presented with the classical symptoms we think of in a young adult, right? Anorexia, fever, pain that maybe migrates from the epigastric or mid-abdominal to the right lower quadrant with leukocytosis. And in the absence of modern imaging, about half the patients were misdiagnosed at the time of admission. And they all had frank a lot of them had frank perforation at the time they were first diagnosed or at least yet surgery. So early imaging might have prevented some of these misdiagnoses. So let me turn to cholecystitis, because this is the most important surgical emergence in the elderly. It's much more common than the elderly. The older you get, the worse it gets, unless you've had your gallbladder out. And appendicitis is much less common. And it's very difficult to diagnose because you can't localize the pain and tenderness. In fact, even if it is localized, it still could be appendicitis in the right upper quadrant or left lower. It could be diverticulitis. You can't really tell without imaging. So medical therapy fails for all elderly people with cholecystitis. So it doesn't mean because they're really old that they can't, don't need surgery. Okay, 
Medical therapy is poor. There's more anaerobic bacteria involved with the cholecystitis than there is in young adults. So we generally do broad-spectrum antibiotics anyway, but in some hospitals, they used to just use a first-generation cephalosporin like cefazolin for people admitted with uh, cholecystitis until they get surgery. We don't do that here anyway, but they still do that in some hospitals. But that doesn't cover anaerobes, so the, what we do here, we usually cover it. Uh, early operation by the surgeon, uh, admission to the surgical service is important, and prompt antimicrobial therapy. Uh, they often present with a complication. So, and you're going to miss this sometime, and you say, how did I miss that? This patient didn't look that ill. This 89-year-old person presented with a ruptured gallbladder, gangrene of the gallbladder, emphysematous cholecystitis you see on the CT scan. He doesn't look that sick. So, again, early imaging is important, and it's possible that a regular ultrasound of the right upper quadrant may miss some of these complications. And so, you'll see later, I'm going to tell you that the, for a sick elderly person with acute abdominal pain, I think it's... Get comp I would order, I personally order a right upper quadrant ultrasound and a CT scan at the same time because they're often complementary. Okay? Uh, Acalculus cholecystitis is something that's seen more in people already in the hospital because it's due to ischemia. And remember, gallstone pancreatitis is common in the elderly. So, in addition to just pancreatitis, they've got gallstones and they may have a duct that's obstructed and have cholangitis. So, it could be a very complicated case of pancreatitis. So here's a Mayo Clinic series again, the Mayo Clinic. This is from the ED at the Mayo Clinic. Looked at patients who came to the ED with acute abdominal pain, got admitted, and it turned out they had surgery and it was acute cholecystitis causing it, even though it might have been misdiagnosed in the ED. They're not sure. But they said they, that 20% of them, only 20% of them had tenderness or pain localized to the epigastric or upper quadrant. The others were generalized pain, and 5% had no pain, only had tenderness. Over half were afebrile. This is on presentation to the ED. Vomiting was common. Uh, normal white count was common in uh, 41%, although it might have been a left shift. And in 5% of these people at the Mayo Clinic, the ultrasound and CT were normal. Now, this is from 1997, so it could have been some people from the 80s when they didn't have as good at CAT scans. But they said they were normal and proven on, CT, on, uh, uh, on surgery to have acute cholecystitis. Yeah, it's a big marker of disease, and you can't. It's like you can't localize it. It could be anything. It could be a change in renal failure, uh, infection anywhere, uh, neurologic issues. It could be a lot of cancer. It could be a lot of things. No, maybe it's too subjective. I don't know. Did you vomit or not? Is more objective, I suppose. So let's look at diverticulitis. This is also very common in the elderly, but it has a low mortality if it's treated correctly. And if you need to go to surgery, you die because surgery is only indicated for the most sick of the sickest people. So uh, again, um, vague pain. It may not be localized to the left lower quadrant, even though it's sigmoid diverticulitis. It may be generalized. And because the sigmoid mesentery is redundant, you can actually have pain and tenderness localized to the right lower quadrant and think of appendicitis, even though the, and the CAT scan only shows disease in the left lower quadrant, but the pen is on the right lower quadrant. Uh, part of imaging here would, would show that. So um, the other thing is that diverticulitis, especially sigmoid diverticulitis, is next to the bladder, and it, it frequently in elderly presents with dysuria, urgency, and frequency. And the elderly people have a high rate of asymptomatic pyurian bacteriuria. It could be up to half of people over 85 have pyurian bacteriuria on the UA, 
and it's irrelevant. It's like asymptomatic, and so you make a misdiagnosis of a UTI based on like lower abdominal pain. They don't look that sick. Uh, so you don't do an image, and they have an abnormal UA and high white count. You admit them or discharge them or pilo or, or UTI. And in fact, uh, Shaheen and I had a patient just like this the other night on my night shift on Saturday. Because she's not here, right? But the patient came in with a, he wasn't, he was like 60 though, lower abdominal pain for two weeks and dysuria. He was a healthy person. He went to his doctor who had an abnormal UA. He said, that's all he tested. He gave him Cipro for 10 days. He got worse and worse. He came in with lower abdominal pain, dysuria, urgency, and frequency. His UA was normal for us. He had a perforated sigmoid diverticulitis. And he'd been misdiagnosed by his doctor for UTI, and he actually had UTI symptoms, and the urinalysis was actually normal in him. He wasn't that old. He was like 59 or something like that. So early imaging was important. We did a CAT scan right away and showed perforated diverticulitis, and he got admitted to the surgery service. So generally, it's medical therapy here. Uh, so sigmoid diverticulus, again, remember, don't diagnose a UTI. If they have lower abdominal pain, don't say it's a UTI with abnormal urine unless you get a CAT scan and so that everything's normal in the abdomen, okay? Because you're going to miss this. You're going to miss some other abdominal emergency. Uh, and remember the sigmoid, uh, the redundant sigmoid can present with right lower quadrant pain. So with, they usually get bowel rest, antibiotics, and they get better. Uh, rare, you, don't, you don't need surgery. Even though when you might need surgery, they tend to have interventional radiologists during an abscess. If they have to go to have a laparotomy, they're probably a peritonitis, and there's a higher rate of death from that because they're so sick. So look. Yeah, so I think um, outpatient treatment can work very well if you use antibiotics that are well absorbed, like a quinolone and a uh, and metronidazole. Although metronidazole causes a lot of vomiting, so you got to be aware that high doses are going to make them vomit. Um, I would say the very elderly, especially over like 70 or 75, you should admit them. Uh, now, I, would, I could potentially discharge somebody who's like 50 or 45. They've got to be reliable, got to be able to get their antibiotics and give them a dose IV in the ED. I would probably say the elderly, I probably wouldn't discharge. If you're not sure, I'd probably keep them in ED observation for 23 hours or 12 hours and see how they do. Uh, so with peptic ulcer disease, and in general population, this disease is becoming much less common because of H. pylori being diagnosed and treated. Uh, because there's um, PPIs and H2 blockers used commonly, and because people don't smoke as much, which is a risk factor. Tobacco use is associated with ulcers. So, but, so it's becoming less common in most people. So a lot of ED doctors don't have much experience with acute peptic ulcer complications. Uh, back when I was younger, we used to see a lot of peptic ulcer disease complications in young people uh, back in the 1970s and 80s. But now, though, you have an actually increasing prevalence of peptic ulcer in the elderly. And it may be that they're just more elderly people, but there's more of them are getting complications from taking NSAIDs and aspirin. And so, but what's different about them is they often have no symptoms or signs of the peptic ulcer until the complication develops, like massive upper jaw bleeding or obstruction or perforation. So a younger person might say they have, they wake up in the middle of the night when their stomach's empty with epigastric pain for like weeks or something. They take milk or antacids, it gets better. Then they come in with bleeding later. The elderly person tends not to have that. They may have no history of any abdominal problems. And suddenly, they've had the ulcer for weeks from their NSAIDs, but they suddenly present with a complication. This is important to highlight for us in terms of being cautious with prescribing NSAIDs in older patients, especially with pain conditions. Do you have any age capacity use? Or 
Yeah, probably about 60. Because I would tend to have them, I guess they're going to use it, I, one little ibuprofen tablet, like 200 milligrams twice a day for three or four days, I wouldn't recommend it. I think it's safer to give them Vicodin or narcotics, which cause constipation. Maybe you'll fall over if you're lethargic, but, but it's not going to cause kidney problems. It's not going to interfere with the beneficial effect of aspirin if they're on it for prophylaxis of stroke and MIs. And so I think it's safer to give them a few Vicodin tablets. So uh, perforated duodenal ulcer, free air. Okay, this is a very important point. You're going to see perforated uh, viscous, and you're not going to see free air. It's not very sensitive. So you're going to actually pick it up on the chest X-ray. You don't suspect it, right? But uh, if you think of free air, of course, this CAT scan is going to be better. But uh, if you want to do plain x-rays, remember this is very important, a lateral chest x-ray upright is much more sensitive than a PA standing upright or an AP portable. So if you had a choice of uh, which x-ray to get for free air, you want a plain x-ray that's not abdominal x-ray, you want a la upright lateral chest x-ray. It's much more sensitive. Now here's one. You can't. This is also free air from a perforated peptic ulcer. It's under the diaphragm here, but you could easily miss this and say it's like air of the lung and that's part of the rib or something, but there's free air apparently here under the diaphragm. It's hard to tell on this x-ray. If we could blow it up on a tax digital, you might see it better. But if you did a lateral, you'd probably see it earlier. So you shouldn't rule out free air on any chest x-ray. If you think it's a free, if you're going to be, if you're thinking of a perforation, you need more advanced imaging. Uh, a tip, let's look at just GI bleeding in the elderly from peptic ulcer. Let's say you don't have to have pain or not, but it's common to have atypical presentations with or without pain. The pain is not classic. It may be with food or without food. Uh, and if it's duodenal ulcer, it's often without the food, with your stomach's empty. With a gastric ulcer, which is more likely in the elderly, it may be with, when you eat, then you get the pain, which more likely suggests things like gallstones or something. Uh, Sometimes the only symptom of the ulcer with the bleeding is fatigue, weight loss, nausea and vomiting, fatigue, and you get fatigue from anemia. And it may present with massive hemorrhage. But the other thing, you're going to miss this in your career unless you think of it. An elderly person has this bleeding peptic ulcer, but they're not vomiting blood. You don't do a rectal and they don't complain of bleeding. And they, they present with acute heart failure. And they present with acute MI because they've gotten so anemic. Uh, that you have two diseases at once. They're bleeding ulcer or whatever it's bleeding caused ischemia in a cart with coronary disease or they had heart failure, it's now worse. So you admit them for heart failure to cardiology and the doctor tells you the next day, did you know he, his hemoglobin was five? Well, of course, you would have got that back in the ED, but be careful uh, missing that. In fact, there was a study that was done at the, published in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings in 1999 but they looked at uh, teaching hospital in Connecticut, all admissions for upper GI bleeding, they screened them for MIs, any age. So it included old people and younger adults who were having upper GI bleeding going in ICU. They found that about 12% of the people in the first three days had an MI, uh, and 13%, the other 13% had acute coronary syndrome. Their major issue was upper GI bleeding, uh, but they actually had a cardiac disease at the same time or within the first three days of admission. And on the elderly people in the study, it was even worse. So as part of our, your upper GI bleeding uh, evaluation, the ED, make sure you get an EKG to see if they don't have acute ischemia. I'm not saying you need a propodin if it's totally normal, but if it's abnormal, I usually get a screening troponin level on almost any critical elderly person with almost anything. 
Uh, but an EKG would be first. If it's totally normal, it makes it less likely they're going to be having an MI from the GI bleeding. Uh, so what about lower GI bleeding? Oh, I bet mentioned about treatment. Aggressive treatments in the elderly with peptic ulcer. They stop, re they reduce re-bleeding. They reduce the need for surgery, but they have not had any effect on their mortality. Okay. So let's look at lower GI bleeding. It's usually painless, and it's usually caused by one of two things. Diverticulosis, not itis, and vascular ectasias, which are often called angiodysplasias. By far the two most common causes if you put those together. Painless bleeding. It can be uh, a lot of bleeding. You could die of that. Uh, fortunately, uh, they often don't do emergency colonoscopy for it because often you admit them and watch them. It stops spontaneously because it's a sort of a low-pressure system sometimes. Uh, but if they, you know, so there isn't too many things you would do in the ED to stop the bleeding. Uh, you might call GI. They say admit to the unit. We'll see them in the morning and see if we can clean them out and do colonoscopy. But often it's stopped by then. I'm going to mention a few of these others later, but ischemic colitis I'm going to show a little later, which is, sounds bad, but it's not as serious as mesenteric occlusion. And you could have colon cancer, usually causes more mild bleeding, could also present with obstruction, and some of these other things can produce bleeding. But remember these two most common things for, uh, for painless bleeding. Now let's look at ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm. We had that on the M&M case. I want to mention just briefly that... Um, if you had a test question on this, you've got to remember that this can really only be treated by a surgeon, right? And so uh, there's nothing much you can do in the ED except diagnose it. So you can actually make them worse by your treatment if you're not careful. So uh, you should, if you suspect any, you want to do a screening ED ultrasound to see if they have an aneurysm. So if you have a good quality study, you don't have a lot of obesity and bowel gas, you can see the aorta and it's small. Essentially, you probably ruled out the diagnosis of a ruptured or leaking abdominal aneurysm. The problem is you could have a mildly enlarged one. You could have an abdominal aneurysm, and you can't really tell if it's leaking, even on his CAT scan sometimes, but on an ultrasound. So once you see that, if the patient's hypotensive, you want to keep them hypotensive. You don't want to give them any fluids. You could give them, I suppose you could give them blood, but the first thing you need to do is once you order initial diagnostic tests, EKG, order some x-rays, maybe, so they're right in the room, they're doing it, you want to get on the phone to the vascular surgeon. Because they don't need to have a CAT scan if they're unstable, and you don't want to give them any fluids if their blood pressure is over 70, unless they're not mentating. Then you want to just get them up to be mentating and then stop, because you're going to make them bleed more if you give fluids. You might order some blood, but the biggest thing, I've seen quite a few people go to the operating room without a CAT scan. And the reason they, ha the ones you look at who had the CAT scan first is because the vascular surgeon wasn't called until the CAT scan was done. Okay. Um, so don't resuscitate them unless you're giving them blood and let them go to the OR and let the doctor make the diagnosis there and don't, they don't give them the fluids until they put the vascular clamp on. Mm -hmm. So uh, re I recommend not getting a CAT scan unless the vascular surgeon requests it. Usually they will if they're not at the hospital. If they're at, away and they're in Long Beach and they have to come in, they'll say, I'm driving in. Uh, if you can get the CAT scan now and they're stable, or even if they're not stable, try to get it. But don't give them a lot of fluids, but, uh, or just sit there and I'll come in and take them to the OR. Uh, if, in my experience, if they're in the hospital, they can come right there. They just come in 10 minutes and take the attending will take them right to the operating room. And remember, one thing I've also said with this lecture before is when you think you have an ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm, don't call the resident. But the resident calls the resident. The attending calls their attending. Because the residents will, they'll just, 
say, oh, I'm busy, I'll come later. So the attendings know how serious it is. So the ED attending should, be, should call directly to the vascular surgery attending, and then you'll get them diagnosed and treated quickly. And even for the sensitivity of it, you may, the CT scan actually miss a rupture if it's small. Here's an example. This is an unruptured aortic aneurysm. This is the whole an the aneurysm here, or the whole aorta. There's a thrombus, and there's the lumen with the blood flowing in it. So you might, you might be able to pick that up on any bedside ultrasound. Some of us might. Here's one that's ruptured. So this was probably shouldn't have been ever done unless this is done when the vascular surgeon isn't here. So they did a CAT scan showing a rupture, a massive rupture. This is all blood here. You can see the calcification of the aorta there. So aortic dissection. So you shouldn't have this in your great differential abdominal pain so much because it mainly, the, the type B dissection, which affects the descending aorta, which would be in the abdomen, it actually causes back pain mainly. So if it's just abdominal pain, it's unlikely, although your tests you're going to get, if you get a CT scan, are really going to see that too. And that usually is a medical treatment for type B dissection. Um, acute mesenteric infarction. Uh, fortunately, this is really rare. And you often think of it in many cases where you're never going to see it. So in my own career, of my own patients, I've probably seen it on a handful of cases in 30 years where it was actually diagnosed as acute mesenteric infarction coming with acute abdominal pain. But you're going to see it in somebody who has vascular disease already. They usually have had an MI, hypertension. So just out of the blue in a healthy person is pretty unusual. But nowadays, that, uh, yeah, so usually diffuse vascular they often they have atrial fibrillation and they have thrown an embolus to their SMA. That's the most common cause. Second most common is the worst kind is you can't do much about is their, their disease is so bad, they just get ischemia of the mesentery without any occlusion. And they're, they're so, there's not too much you can do about that. They have the highest mortality. And uh, the, meso, the venous cause, they can have mesenteric venous thrombosis too, which you can't do much about except supportive care. So what do you do for treatment? What are, the, what are the clinical features? First of all, they say, this applies to everybody and not the elderly, acute severe pain out of proportion to findings. But remember, the elderly may not have severe pain. So I wouldn't, and if somebody over 75, you could ask, was this the worst pain you've ever had? No, or something, or I don't know. Or uh, is the pain worse than this, the tenderness? It's often hard to tell. So they may apply to more of a younger person. But can be misdiagnosed because what they get when they get the acute pain, they often have a non-bloody bowel movement right away, and then they have two or three bloody bowel movements over two or three hours, and then it stops. Okay, so that you could present with bloody diarrhea, but it stops after a few hours, and you may actually have very un very unusual symptoms. They may have GI bleeding, mental confusion may be the only symptom. So you can have lab values, hemoconcentration, metabolic acidosis, high lactate, pretty nonspecific, elevated phosphorus and alkphos. And then here's an example of a CT scan. This is the scout film or digitogram of a CT scan uh, showing there's free air in the colon wall here. That's mesenteric, there's mesenteric infarction. And then this is the, uh, there's CT in the right, there's actually air in this pure mesenteric vein here, okay? So uh, let's look at if you got plain x-rays or sometime a CAT scan. Let's say you got plain x-rays on somebody. You might see dilated gaseous loops of small bowel with air fluid levels. You might mistake it for a bowel obstruction. Uh, thumbprinting of the bowel wall. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell more about thumbprinting later, what that is, but it's not too specific for, for this. It can actually be seen with some more benign things. But if you see intramural or portal gas, 
on your plain x-rays, that's a bad sign. Free peritoneal air could be a lot of things, but also could get that from acute mesenteric infarction. So this famous surgeon, Dr. Bowley, designed a protocol for surgeons, vascular surgeons to use. Some of it's out of date, but uh, essentially high suspicion in somebody who already has vascular, vascular disease, okay? And get a CAT scan, but he said a regular CAT scan to look for other things, they had an angiogram. Now that we have the better CAT scans, you can usually just do a CT angiogram of the abdomen as your CAT scan. So you look for other things as well as seeing the, uh, the mesenteric occlusion. And so they don't use pulmonary catheters much before you want resuscitation. Uh, you want to give them fluids to get rid of their lactic acid. And if they're on drugs which can cause this, make it worse, you want to give them to get rid of the digoxin and vasopressors. And one of the important things you might remember is heparin. So if they're not bleeding out somewhere, you could just order heparin on them. That's what they usually use in what vascular disease use, heparin, and give antibiotics, at least within the first few hours, because they're getting ischemia of the bowel and they can perforate and get peritonitis. So general this is treated with a vascular surgeon to decide what to do. Uh, so if you think a patient has this, I would probably like the, uh, just like the patient with abdominal organ, I'd probably have your attending get on the phone with a vascular surgery attending and recommend what to do. Usually they say, well, get a CT angio. I'll send my chief resident down, order some heparin if they don't have a contraindication. That usually is, suffices for a few hours anyway. And then they'll usually try to, if it's, if it's a, um, obstructed artery of the, of the SMA, they'll often go down and take that out, the vascular surgeon in surgery, and just remove it. And I don't know if IR does that now, but vascular had done that in the past. I'm going to skip intestinal angina. We have next case two. 85-year-old woman. She's from a nursing home. She's very demented. She comes in uh, on a previous shift, right, acute right hip pain running down the medial thigh. History of abdominal pain and vomiting two days ago now resolved. That was in the nursing notes from the sniff, but the patient has no complaints of this because she's demented. Osteoarthritis, dementia, hypertension. She had her female organs taken out. Her vital signs were normal. She's very thin, little muscle mass. There's no abdominal tenderness or mass is felt. And you notice her right hip is flexed. You can range it fully, although she said it hurts when you move it, but you can move it fully. But it seems to be hip pain, right? So she gets hip x-rays, which are normal per the attending radiologist, and a normal lab test. They're normal. She's sent back with hip pain or whatever, osteoarthritis, to the nursing home, and she comes back to see her partner 12 hours later. Now she's vomiting, has generalized pain, tenderness, distension. You don't feel any masses anywhere in the, around the abdomen. No pelvic is done because she's had all her female organs out. What's the use? Acute abdominal surgery shows a partial SBO. No CT is done. She's admitted to medicine who says they'll take over and arrange any more tests they need, like surgeons or whatever. And 12 hours later, she's upstairs. She's now becoming much more ill, uh, seemed to have more pain in the abdomen and tenderness and vomiting. Calls a surgeon. The surgeon comes and uh, is very experienced and knows that the patient initially had right hip and thigh pain. So if you're an experienced surgeon, they would probably tell you, oh, I... And the pel they, uh, surgeon did a pelvic exam. There's a right vaginal mass. So the surgeon knows the diagnosis right away. It's a surgical emergency. What do you think it is? Not a femoral. Obturator hernia. So the patient, it's a CT scan that confirms the diagnosis. The patient has a strangled obturator hernia with dead bowel. Patient died of multiple organ failure later in the, uh, despite surgery. So here's an example of a strangulated obturator hernia. It's easily seen on a CAT scan.
long as the radiologist is good and they can interpret them, out in the pelvis, there it is. It's an obturator hernia. I mean, you might miss that on your, if you're looking at it, but a radiologist should pick that up. So, uh, you know, she's, she had hip pain. That's common with obturator hernias, is hip pain, and the x-rays are negative on the hip bones, right? Um, Here's another example. This is the scanogram of the first digital, like a scanogram of the CT scan showing a bowel obstruction. And here's the same patient's CT scan uh, showing the, uh, the hernia right there. Uh, incarcerated hernia presented with bowel obstruction. So you could see if you saw this patient with bowel obstruction at plain x-rays, you might just admit to medicine or surgery for GI, NG suction, IV fluids, and follow the patient, see if their adhesions get better. But if you, did, if you did a CAT scan, you're going to find a reason for that obstruction. It's treatable with surgery, and it, it could be fatal if it's not treated with surgery. So intestinal obstruction is a major cause of surgical emergency in the elderly, as opposed to young people. It's not just inguinal hernias. Sometimes it's internal hernias, which you can't feel from an old adhesions inside. Can't see those, and cancer too. Uh, here's an example of a bowel obstruction. In general, not necessarily an old person. You see multiple dilated loops of small bowel, and this is, how do you know this is small bowel? There's no haustra? Yeah. And you see the, the valvuli conaventes, they always see those, whether it's dilated or not, right? Okay. And, and now there is an upright showing airflow levels. This is called a string of pearls sign. And what is that? It's in the bowel. Well, it's not really in the wall. It's trapped between the uh, valvuli conaventes. It's not necessarily in the wall. But I'll show you another sign of that later, showing an obstruction. I think I have it. Here it is, a lateral decubitus. So that means the patient's lying on their left side down. Acute abdominal series, they can't stand up. They have to do a lateral decubitus. They usually have to stay in 20 minutes on that side first. So left side's down, and you see these are, this is uh, actually per, string of pearl sign. It's like more than you'd ever see in anybody, probably. But it's example of there's air trapped in the valvular conaventes, which is pretty classic for some kind of small bowel obstruction. Partial, it could be partial. So let's look at ischemic colitis. This sounds really bad, doesn't it? But it's much more common, you think, and it has a good outcome. It's not the same as mesenteric infarction. So the pain is mild. It often mimics diverticulitis, except it's milder. Left lower quadrant pain. You could have some bloody diarrhea or red blood parectum, but the bleeding's only mild. So generally, this is a very small vessel disease of the colon wall. So there's small vessel disease, but you're not getting a major infarction of the bowel. Generally not life-threatening. You have supportive care, and you, it gets, really gets better. Uh, treat the underlying vascular disease. So thumbprinting on the radiographs is common with this, as well as other things, including colitis. And so what's thumbprinting? This is ischemic colitis with thumbprinting. I'll show you a better example in a minute, which is much more better example than this. But what does that mean? So it only occurs in the colon. So it means like you're taking your, if you take your thumb and you press it in the colon wall, this particular, th right there is the thumbprint, that's a thumbprint, that's a thumbprint. It's the density. It's edema and hemorrhage in the bowel wall. Okay? And I'll show you a better example. But it's not specific for ischemic colitis. Actually, you see it in bad colitis from C. difficile, mesenteric infarction. So it doesn't tell you how bad the disease is, but it says there's something wrong with the colon. Here's a thumbprinting of the transverse colon. You can see this usually here. Look at this. The thumbprinting going in there, that's your thumbprint. Okay, it's the white part. 
It's edema and hemorrhage in the bowel wall. I think if you saw, if you had a, somebody with a like bloody diarrhea, you know, a younger person, you're thinking of some bad colitis. You, if you see this, it might go along with diffuse colitis. Uh, is it oh, yes, edema yeah, with or without? Uh, you can have just edema, you can have hemorrhage, but it's not necessarily air in the bowel wall. It's actually, see, it's not air, you're seeing the bowel wall better. Okay. So let me look at hernias for a minute. I mentioned obturator, but of course, inguinal is the most common in internal hernias with adhesions. But remember the rare obturator hernia because you're going to miss it without a CAT scan. Here's an example of an incarcerated femoral hernia. This is the CAT scan showing the the scanogram, you see a bowel obstruction, that's a streak artifact from hardware in the spine. But there's the hernia right there. There's the incarceration. There's the bowel, there's the hernia right there. It's trapped. So you can see the femoral hernia. So a CAT scan again. Early CAT scans are going to make this diagnosis. Now, remember that one-third of these people that are elderly really don't have signs of bowel ischemia when they have the bowel ischemia. So they may not look that sick. Their lactate may be getting high, but they could be really sick and die of multi-organ failure if you don't take drastic action. This strangular obdure hernia I mean, is very rare, but it tends to be the most lethal of all the hernias. It tends to occur in thin women with chronic medical conditions. It's called a little old lady's hernia, usually in a nursing home, demented. And they may have recurrent bouts of obstruction because it incarcerates and unstrangulates or whatever. So, or it, so they may have recurrent bouts. It often causes hip and thigh pain on the side of the hernia. It may actually present with pain in the thigh uh, and uh, hip pain, and you think it's a hip problem. And they may have the Hauschip-Romberg sign, which is something probably surgeons learn about. Um, I'm not sure it's need to really remember that, but uh, essentially pain radiates down the medial thigh to the knee, worsened by motion of the hip, especially abduction and extension and in rotation also. And uh, generally, if you find that in a young person, it's probably not this disease. But a young, an older lady who's emaciated might be this disease. And then another, just an example, incarcerated obturator hernia. Cat scan easily seen. You're going to miss that on your exam. You may feel a mass in the vagina where it's the hernia. Okay, On the female. On a male, you're not going to be able to feel it, right? Intestinal obstruction. Remember, uh, you can have obstruction from non-obstruction, pseudo-obstruction. Uh, which is often in bedridden patients who are on multiple drugs. The treatment is mainly to stop all the drugs, give them hydration, Olgaby syndrome. Uh, it's not something you really diagnose much in the ED. Gallstone ileus, uh, also very rare, very interesting if you see one. Uh, you often have a bowel obstruction. You may see a gallstone in the intestinal tract. Usually it's pretty big, but it's going to be obstructing and it often gets stuck at the, uh, the uh, junction of the uh, ileocecal valve, right? Pneumobilia volvulus. So I'm going to show some examples of volvulus here in a minute. Colon cancer, uh, I've seen that present in the ED. It usually doesn't, but it may present with bowel obstruction, peritonitis, or bleeding. Usually the bleeding isn't massive. And you send the, we're going to send the patient out. We do a CAT scan, you'll see a colon cancer that's pretty big. Uh, sigmoid volvulus. I'm going to show some examples because it makes good pictures. It's usually these are the elderly, although I've seen it more in young, older men like who are like 50 or 60. Uh, plain radiograph shows particular findings. It's better seen, of course, on a CT scan. Um, and here's an example. It was twisting. Here's another example of sigmoid volvulus. And I have another example. Oops, wait. Go back here. Let's go back. Uh, okay, yeah. One more. There, we see from Netter showing the twisting. 
with so the bird's beak head is essentially pointing toward the sigmoid colon as opposed to a cecal modulus, okay? Pretty easily you're going to see something really wrong on the abdomen x-ray. You may not know what it is. A radiologist might help you. Uh, here's an example at surgery. So cecal vibulus is sort of pointing the other direction, but it's not too important for you to remember the difference between those two. Here's a cecal vibulus. And here's a cecal vibulus in two different people. Uh, essentially, I want to mention something about cecal vibulus. The vibulus here in general is that my personal recommendation at UCI, if you find a patient with a vibulus, that the radiologist is a, especially a sigmoid vibulus, is you call the colorectal surgeon. And they know them by about the treatment of this. I've had them actually come to the ED where they're attending at midnight and do colonoscopy in, in room E. Used to be trauma A. Colonoscopy at midnight by the attending colorectal surgeon reducing it's pretty messy in there, but they reduced the, <laughs> they reduced the, uh, the, the, they reduce it by they put it in the colonoscopy all the way through, and it un unwinds it, and it cures them, and then they get admitted and have elective surgery later to tack it down so they don't twist again. So I would recommend calling the colorectal surgeon for this if you're on a big hospital like ours, and not the R, not the R5 and ACS. They might they probably say on the phone call the colorectal surgeon, but they might spend a little time getting more X-rays and things you don't need. Meckel's diverticulum in the elderly. This is very uncommon, but has a completely different presentation than young people when it presents like the abnormal peptic ulcer disease type picture with, with painless bleeding. It usually presents as an inflammatory mass with obstruction or perforation. And it's seen on a CT scan. Here's show you a CT scan. This is actually intercepted Meckel's diverticulum in the lumen of the distal ileum right there. So this, you're not going to pick this up on your history and physical, right? It's going to be something on a CAT scan. And there's a Meckel, this is the bladder. Here's the contrast in the bladder, IV contrast. And there's the Meckel's diverticulum there, which is inflamed. And here's what was taken out. That's actually that patient's, wasn't my patient, but there's a, that's the intestines that were removed. And there's the, the infarcted Meckel's diverticulum. That's going to be like an unusual thing. You're not going to pick that up on your H&P, right? But the CAT scan might show that. Then uh, lastly, I want to say a few words about C. difficile colitis. This is becoming more and more a cause of death in the elderly who have had healthcare, uh, who have been in a healthcare facility, including going out and coming to the ED, and not just associated with antibiotic use. So here's an example of a man presenting with a toxic megacolon, and there he's got, what do you call these things again? Thumb what? Thumb printing, right. So it's. It's, that's serious. There, he probably died. He had a colectomy. So there was a uh, there's some of the best studies of C. difficile in elderly have come from Montreal, the teaching hospital in Montreal, because they had had big outbreaks of this hypertoxigenic strain. And so they studied at McGill and uh, I think Montreal Jewish Hospital, 836 consecutive patients who were elderly admitted to hospitals to what they felt was community-acquired C. difficile, and they did a match nested case control study with 10 control patients for each case. And they found there was a big, ex uh, antibiotic exposure was a big risk, 10.6, okay? That's a really big risk. But a lot of them had no exposure to antibiotics. So, uh, in fact, half had no antibiotics in the prior 45 days and 46%, none in the 90 days. The biggest factor was being in a healthcare facility. So, uh, at any time. It's not just the antibiotics. It's just getting, because this disease, it doesn't go around the community unless it's, you get it in a hospital, you get colonized, you go out. You go home and it's, you may not have it, but you may leave it on your, on your house 
and your elderly or young child or elderly person may pick up the spores at home. So have been associated with a healthcare facility, either staying two nights or more in a hospital, being in a nursing home or being on dialysis is a big risk factor. Forget the antibiotics, that's important, but just being in a healthcare facility and getting out and then coming back to the ED with abdominal pain and with, with or without diarrhea. The CDC did a major study of over 10,000 patients so over 111 acute care hospitals and about 311 nursing homes. They just published this in their MMWR. And what it shows is that they looked at uh, the time of the time of, they, well, the time of onset of the infection. Where did they acquire it? Only 25% of them had onset in the hospital. They actually got it in the hospital. The others started to get, they probably picked it up colonizing at home, but they got it at home and they, they came into the ED or the hospital with it already. A lot of them were nursing home patients, a quarter were nursing home patients, and a lot of them had no antibiotics. But they, the common thing was they were exposed, they had community onset, but they were exposed to a healthcare environment in the past. See, only about five or six percent had no healthcare exposure in the past 90 days. These are elderly, that was, uh, this was all comers, not just elderly. So this epidemic strain has come to California. It started in Montreal, it went to the East Coast. It produces 15 or 20 times the amount of toxin, but it's not any more easily diagnosed on the toxin assay. It doesn't necessarily cross-react quite anymore uh, with the toxin assay we do. It's becoming epidemic, it's very high, highly fatal, it's hard to treat, and age is the most important risk factor. And there's much more common to get fulminant disease, toxin, megacolon, and death. Sometimes there's no diarrhea or it's very minimal. So abdominal pain could be a presenting complaint. And if they're on fluoroquinolones in the pa recent past, it, it's, it's associated with outbreaks of this hypertoxigenic strain. So remember this CDI affects older adults more than younger people. How, about three quarters of the cases, they don't have their onset in the hospital. 90% of deaths are in the elderly. This toxigenic strain, hypertoxic strain is becoming widespread, highly, highly fatal. Risk factors for death, if you see the patient in the ED, you think they have it if they're elderly, if they have a very high white count, or they're hypotensive, obviously, they have a high risk for death. And it's been shown by several articles in the surgical literature that severe C. difficile colitis has a lower mortality if they're admitted to surgery service. So call the surgeon for a consult. If you think you have some, probably any age, but severe C. difficile colitis, you're pretty thinking, you're thinking of that, you call the surgeon and they'll have a lower death rate. It helps the surgeons are writing these articles saying it, they have a lower death rate. These are teaching hospitals too that they're admitted to. So there are hospitals though that have a critical care surgery team like a trauma team and critical care surgery like ours. So uh, think of admitting to the surgical service or get a surgery consult from the beginning and admit them to the ICU and medicine. Yes? So Dr. Brown, because it's, like, it's causing by toxin, so I assume that HIV, HIV or AIDS is not increasing. No. No. In the elderly, though, it's usually associated with, there's a healthcare association where you think of it, because they were in a healthcare facility, forget the antibiotic exposure, that's a big risk factor, but it's the, the old people are likely to get to a healthcare facility, right? So there's a so few key... time frame of healthcare facility exposure would you consider? Uh, usually I'd say 90 days. That, so that's in a nursing home at any time. Uh, they usually say it's staying two nights to pass midnight twice in an acute care hospital or being in a homodialysis unit at any time. So that's a bigger risk factor as antibiotics, okay? So that's a lot of our elderly people have done that, right? So here's a few key points. Remember, cholecystitis is the most common surgical cause of a surgical emergency in the, in the, in the elderly. 
And appendicitis is much less common. It's uh, unusual to get your classic symptoms and signs. The symptoms of a localized emergency are often vague, not localized. The pain may be less severe. You may not think they're that sick. The patient may uh, also not may minimize the symptoms. They may have a normal white count. They may not have as much fever, vomiting, leukocytosis. And if you don't do advanced imaging, you're going to have an incorrect diagnosis in a lot of patients. Uh, don't let the admitting team do the advanced imaging. You should start it yourself. A few more key points. Remember peptic ulcer. It's very common in the very elderly. They're often on NSAIDs. That's a clue. And it's often misdiagnosed if you get a CAT scan because you don't see the perforation. They may be just starting. And, you, and they may not have bleeding. They may just have pain. And you're not going to see that unless you do endoscopy. Uh, remember, upper GI bleeding from peptic ulcer in the elderly is very serious. It's it's often fatal, even with appropriate treatment. Remember, C. difficile disease is becoming more common. This hypertrexogenic strain is killing a lot of people. And remember that when you describe an antibiotic for a UTI in an elderly person in the ER going home, and they have asymptomatic pyuria, they probably didn't need that antibiotic. They may come back with C. difficile. And don't forget about mesenteric ischemia. It's very, unfortunately, very uncommon. Remember, a CT angio of the belly would help you in that. And heparin. And if you're considering a ruptured AAA, after you do your initial assessment, initial orders, call the vascular surgeon. Don't give them a lot of fluids. And don't get a CAT scan unless the vascular surgeon tells you to. There's lots of causes for acute abdominal pain in the elderly. And uh, this is going to be in the handout you might see later, or in, if you listen to this later on iTunes. But there's even medical causes. MIs, pneumonia can cause acute abdominal pain. Diabetic wall nephropathy, DKA, hypercalcemia, a lot of different things. This a herbie zoster besides an acute abdominal intestinal emergency. Here's a few uh, pitfall, pitfalls. Uh, not obtaining surgical consultation early. Uh, you're going to miss that. Let the surgeon misdiagnose the surgical abdomen, not you. They may misdiagnose it, but then you could blame them. They're the, they're the expert. They should miss the surgical emergency. So call them early, even if they don't want to come. Just inform them of the patient. Oops. Uh, and another pitfall is not ordering advanced image early on. Uh, don't rely on classic symptoms and signs, including fever and leukocytosis, to make any diagnosis. Beware of diagnosing an elderly person with acute pain as constipation or gastroenteritis. And remember also to always include something in the chest as a cause of abdominal pain, MI or pneumonia. So you might want to make sure you get an x-ray and an EKG. And beware, this is commonly done, beware of misdiagnosing diverticulitis as a UTI because of the you can have UTI symptoms and well as asymptomatic pyuria in the elderly. And here's my way of rapid evaluation for a very early patient with a suspected abdominal. This goes on in two more slides too. So I see an elderly person who's 90 or 85, demented. I think they're really sick with it might be an abdominal problem. You don't really know. So I'm going to get every possible test right away, including a troponin, lactate, a blood culture, at least one. I may not send it yet. And I would always get a venous blood gas with lights in the first blood draw, because that's going to come back before the lactate showing acidosis. And you're going to have your lights way back before the lab calls and says, oh, the blood from the vein was hemolyzed. Let's get another light, and so it's going to take another hour. When you give them IV fluids, give them small bol boluses frequently, like 250, 300 cc an hour at a time, I mean, not a bolus at a time, and then reassess each time. So they give them two liters wide open. For pain, start with fentanyl at very low doses, not a long-acting drug because elderly people, especially over 80, are extremely susceptible to the side effects of opiates. They have, their receptors are different. It's nothing to do with the blood level. 
they can get really lethargic and stop breathing with half a milligram of Dilaudid sometime. So you can't withdraw that. So I would stick with fentanyl, at least initially, at low doses. For vomiting, avoid promethazine and metoclopramide because they have very high rate of adverse effects on the elderly. Try to stick with odansetron and plocarperazine, which is compazine. Unfortunately, there's a shortage of parenteral compazine right now. So we usually reserve our doses at our hospital for hyperemesis gravidarum. So you may have to give another drug, but um, you could also give this compazine rectally. That there's no shortage of rectal compazine. So it has less side effects than the other drugs. And you want to do an ED bedside ultrasound by the MD for gallstones, aortic aneurysm, et cetera. You may look at the heart. Do that right away as part of your first test. I get an EKG, I get an X-ray of the chest. I may not get the abdomen to look for something in the chest that may be causing abdominal pain. Lower lobe pneumonia, heart failure, pleural effusion. But remember, you're not doing it to look for free air because it's usually not seen. So then I want to order IV antibiotics at the same time ordering advanced imaging. So I usually would order both tests at the same time. Right, it required an ultrasound and a CT scan with IV contrast, not oral. It's faster that way at the same time. And IV antibiotics are ordered so that they're up either running when the patient's getting their CAT scan or ultrasound or right afterward. And I would generally call the surgeon after you've ordered these things, order everything, and then call the surgeon. They may not want to come, but you can write in the chart. At this time, I called the surgeon about a possible surgical emergency, and they delayed their consultation. That's their problem. Because you're going to be called. You're going to miss these things. And it's going to be 8 or 12 hours later. Oh, I diagnosed a perforated viscous. It's 12 hours later. The surgeon can call. Why didn't you call me earlier? And so one thing, uh, what I've said here a lot is, my opinion and the consensus of experts, there's because there's not a lot of high-quality studies of, of acute abdominal emergencies in the elderly. There's not a lot, they're often observational studies. There's a paucity of evidence. So um, there's probably a good uh, area for research in emergency medicine in a geriatric patient with an acute abdominal, any kind of acute emergency. If you're at a hospital that has a lot of elderly people, you could probably get a lot of good studies out of this, just studying the elderly people. And it's often hard to evaluate these people. Uh, any questions? That's it. Yes? Uh, maybe I'm oversimplifying it. If I, if I am, please correct me. But does that mean that anyone over the age of 75 with even a vague abdominal pain has well, got themselves a CT? The blood tests, like, no, we do already. But so it, well, I'm talking about acute pain. You have a lot of elderly people with chronic pain. Yeah. So that's different. Uh, acute pain, I would say vague, mild pain could be very serious. So you might want to make sure you repeat the vital signs right away. Are they getting abnormal? Get the basic lab tests. Uh, I would say, if you're not sure, I would not. I would consider you maybe wait an hour or two to get the imaging ordered if they're not too sick looking. But if anything pops out like a little hypotensional tachycardia, leukocytosis with bandemia, and you're not clear it's something out of the abdomen for sure, I would go right away with advanced imaging. And I wouldn't call a surgeon to do a consult first sure. because they're not going to come right away, and they're going to talk to their chief, and it's going to take a few hours, and they're going to get a CAT scan anyway. I would probably tend to do it early. Now, if they just came last week for the same pain that was negative, it's chronic, I probably wouldn't necessarily do all those things. But unless you do a pretty rapid assessment, you're going to miss. Look what happened in the M&M case. I wouldn't have let that patient leave the ED. You had no diagnosis. Uh, you would, should have done a CT scan, even not knowing what it was. I thought it was going to be a PE with pulmonary infarction on that case. I would have done CTs on yeah, the case of abdominal aortic aneurysm that he had here. I mean, even in that case, like it looked like there was a pneumonia. In the first case, it was a really good case for pancreatitis. They had a billion. Right. 
And the internist missed it. A surgeon probably would have got a CAT scan, but just just because they get a lot of those. But uh, now I would say I would get I would get a CAT scan on everybody being admitted for acute pancreatitis of any age, unless they just had one like two weeks ago when they had their pancreatitis. So, or, or last month, I would get it on it. But you don't have to necessarily, and a younger person, you might get it, you might order it and admit them anyway, I suppose, but to medicine while you're waiting for it, but I would tend to get it. And I tend not to do the oral contrast. It takes too long and it delays your diagnosis. So this is what, I only get oral contrast if I think somebody might have a perforated peptic ulcer and I only have them drink it in the CAT scanner. And I have an arrangement with, uh, if Dr. Cohen's on, the chief down there in CT, I'll tell him, if I have the daytime, he's only there in the daytime, right? I have a patient with a perforated peptic ulcer, so we send him down right away, no contrast, we'll drink on the table, they drink a little on the table, and they do the CAT scan, which is supine, right? Then they turn them over, prone, and do another one, and drink more contrast. And you sometimes see a perforation only on the prone one. Have you ever thought about that? Talk to when if there usually people come in at like nine at night. There's no Dr. Cohen there, so tell the radiology resident, can you do, after doing the CT scan have them drink the contrast in the scanner or right as they go down to look for something in the stomach, and after the CAT scan the resident should be right there in the CAT scanner the radiology resident looking at it on the screen. If he doesn't see an obvious diagnosis, turn him prone and do it again. And Dr. Cohen or yeah prone and Dr. Cohen's perforated peptic ulcer seen only on the prone. <laughs> Localized perforation. Yeah. Those rare cases, given the caveat which I agree with, where you think it is constipation that's causing the discomfort, what do you think about treating and reassessing in the ED versus outpatient? For, treating for constipation? Like yeah, I will give I will give people uh, Miralax uh, double dose, which is 34 grams of the powder because it's 17 grams in a packet, and two doses of Senna, and I'll usually watch them. And, but I'm watching them not so much that they have, they, often they get better just being observed. Their, their symptoms all go away. I might discharge before it makes any difference. And I make sure I send them home with a bedpan in the car. That's important. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I, have, I sometimes write constipation as a diagnosis in a patient, but it's always like the last one. Abdominal pain, unknown cause. I sometimes do. Yeah, but I, I sometimes will do that because I'm not sure when they're going to get their doses. But I'm not sure that's essential, you know. And I wouldn't necessarily wait for a response. Because then there'd be a, there's an observe. If they're an observation, maybe I would if they're there for 12 hours. Yes? All right, so I saved a bunch of questions for you. Oh. First of all, how, how reassuring is a negative rectal uh, FOBT? Or say peptic ulcer bleed, you know, time it takes for blood to travel mm -hmm. and stuff like that? Well, if it's only going on for a few hours, it could be negative. Unfortunately, though, that a lot of blood causes stim stimulates the GI tract to cause rapid transit. And so if you have a negative blood and they have symptoms for three days, it's probably not any major bleeding. Okay. Yeah, I think it can be very useful. I've been surprised how many times I have somebody come in with an acute cardiac event and their hemocue is like eight. We have no record of why they would have it. And you do a rectal, it's melanin. The patient had no complaint of bleeding. And they were like 85, and then the wife says, oh, they never had bleeding. But it must have been having melanin for a while. So. Secondly, um, how sensitive, or do you know how sensitive CT scan is for free air in the setting of perforation? Um, yeah, it's extremely sensitive if it's really free air. If it's a localized perforation, that's you may miss that, it, unless you have a really good radiologist. So I'm talking about a CT body 
board certified radio body radiologists attending looking at it. You're probably not going to miss a localized perforation either. But remember, a lot of general radiologists are reading the CT scans, and they may miss it. Whereas a CT body fellowship trained radiologist might pick it up. So you're not likely to miss free peritoneal air, but you might miss a localized perforation unless you ask the, ra the radiologist to look particularly for that when you talk to them on the phone. And they might miss it the first time and pick it up on their next review of it. So the fact when you have a localized perforation, it can mimic pancreatitis without the free air on the x-rays. And it may have a free perforation in a few hours. And the differentiating between uh, mesenteric or uh, acute ischemic colitis versus acute mesenteric ischemia. Okay, with mesenteric colitis, with uh, ischemic colitis, the pain is very mild. But you said a lot of times the pain can be mild with mesenteric ischemia also. Yeah, like but it's, been, not, it's not well studied on the pain to severity in the elderly, remember. So, so demented people may just present with mental status changes. So having that, uh, is lactate useful? In uh, I think it would be, yeah, extremely useful, especially following it. If they've had it for a few hours and it's lactate's normal, it's probably not likely. But if they come in for 30 minutes and lactate's normal, you might want to repeat it in two hours. And you could still get, as you, if you're going to get a CAT scan anyway, get a CT angio as part of the CAT scan. And then you don't, you forget the oral, con then it's, it's good for looking for other things as a CT with contrast. CT angio, yeah. There's more, they give more contrast with it, but it shows all the other things. The general just told in the lecture is that in the elderly, oftentimes, you should have a high index of suspicion, even though you may have very little history or lab findings or imaging findings to suggest anything. Yeah. So when are you feeling comfortable saying, okay, well, I don't think you, know, you need to be observed and you can I would only do it after advanced imaging and observation is negative. And they're feeling better. And it's not chronic pain, which is not uncommon anyway. You could have chronic abdominal pain, and the patient says, oh, it's my same pain. I just need some dilated shots or something. That happens in the elderly, too. Yeah. You know, so, but then you could be fooled, but and also they get chronic pain. Follow-up they have if they have a, a doctor and a supportive family that knows them well and it's not concerned that this is something that's emergent. That's one thing. Whereas if it's somebody who's hasn't gone to the doctor in mm -hmm. four years, that person's almost definitely. Yeah. So even people with insurance can't see their own doctor because they're too busy. So it's more important with a supportive family that understands the importance of bringing them back or calling their doctor right away. Because you call your doctor the next day with Blue Cross. Yeah, I'm full. Uh, come see me in eight weeks. I don't care if you're seen in the ED. That's the way it works. So. Probably more important is a supportive family that understands if it persists, they don't get better, come back to the ED right away. Probably that's better than calling their doctor. For the, I'm talking about the elderly person, especially the most elderly. Yeah, you shouldn't get an argument from somebody if you want to admit an 80-year-old belly pain. Yeah, just do, ED, just do inpatient OBS. Just 72 hours on Medicare. Just do that. I don't think you should get an argument. If you get an argument, the guy's really got to lunch. Yeah, and I would say if you're going to admit to medicine, I would call the surgeon and let them know. And if they refuse to come, don't make them. Just write on the chart you called them. It's probably still a medical issue, but write it on the chart that you called the surgeon. And they were going to do a consult, but you didn't say when. <laughs> right? So <laughs> they, usually, well, they usually will come and do one, but they may not come in 30 minutes. They may come in four hours after more tests are done. OK, I think I'm running over time. Are we any more questions? I'll try to get this on a PDF document I could send out for your iPads. I can make the PowerPoint into a PDF. Problem is I can't send an email unless it's under about four to six megabytes. So I have to get it get all the images out of it. Because it's like twenty one megabytes now. I'll put the key points.
<laughs> Dropbox, I can do Dropbox. You have that? Okay, I can do that. <laughs> okay. Does he come with food? I don't know. They should have probably asked him to. They should have asked him to. Hopefully he'll just not do it. He wants business. Yeah, I think when I talked to him last year at the, you know, the, the, um, the, whatever, the restaurant. Yeah, so he's like, yeah, you know, I'll bring food and everything. Oh, so I even though I thought you would have nothing to do with There's someone who would have also heard of But yeah, so like, I mean, somebody wouldn't have sent the triage lab, so there's probably something I have. Because he was like, he was sitting there, like, chilling, talking to the senses, like, on the seat, like, resharpening. Boom. So I was like, oh, thank you. Crazy cool business. So I didn't go back to work. Yeah, you write your name and then your your um your study ID. So your study your study ID will be like eight digits from that. Oh, okay. You know. Yeah. And then if you can send me your phone number by email. How is it so far? So it's like, yeah, so it's like, so this is like, if you mail, if you age like 21, so it'd be M21, you know, whatever your proof letter of your first. So this is one, two, 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 and one. Yeah. Yeah, like your name and the study identifier in the paper and then seal it. Yeah, and then give it back to me. So I'll give it to Irma.
Yeah, so I have to do 